0: Those of you joining us online, thank you for checking in with us. So this is gonna be kind of a different kind of a message. I'm gonna have a a bunch of things thrown in there. Um, I was reading uh, an excerpt from a book, Uh, Jeremy Adams is a teacher in Southern California has been nominated uh, as national teacher of the year. And uh, I came across a a quote from uh, his book, um, which was, uh, and it's it's basically what he's doing is he's sharing uh, what he's seen in his classrooms and his concerns and he wrote this describing the generations uh, that he's of students that he's seen going through his classrooms and he writes this he says i see a generation living solitary lives hyper connected to technology but unattached to their families churches or communities and he's worried and he's concerned about what's this next generation what what's going what are their lives going to be like and 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 so the reason I bring that all up is because school is starting, and we have a tradition around here. We like to pray for those teachers that are a part of, you know, raising our kids and teaching our kids. And so I'm going to ask you to do a very hard thing, whether you're online or here. If you're online, it's really much easier. But if you're here in-house, if you are a teacher, an educator, you're, you're kind of involved in the educational uh, system, Uh, Whether you homeschool or you teach in a public school or a Christian school, would you just stand right now? Please? Please? Come on. Come on. Come on. You can do it. And Keep standing. Keep standing. What I want to do is I want to pray for you as you start a new school year. Um, And I want to pray for God's assistance and help um, because Frankly, you need it, and uh, I'm well aware of that. Um, But let's just unite our hearts together in prayer. Can we do that? Father, we thank you for these folks that are standing and those who are watching online who are educators or teachers. They have a heart for the kids and the people that they're around, and we just ask that you'd help them. They've been put in very difficult situations because many of their students come from single parent homes or homes where there's just a lot of conflict and a lot of... uh, trouble and then they show up in class and they have issues and, uh, and yet they're tasked to teach curriculum and assignments and yet there's so many social needs that need to be met and then throw upon that the mask or no mask and the anger and all the frustration with the COVID and you know, the, the last year and now coming to a new year and not knowing kind of what it's going to mean. We just pray f- for peace. We pray for a calmness. We pray for them to know that you're with them through this, that you will walk with them, help them as they um, mentor their students and try to be a help and an encouragement to them. Um, We just pray that you would give them whatever they need, when they need it, uh, whether it's patience or wisdom or just a a listening heart. Um, Father, we pray that it would be a good year, a safe year, uh, a productive year. For them and for their students, and we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Thank you for standing too, I appreciate that. So, what I'm gonna do and what I try to do is with the messages, we all try to do this with the messages here, is we want to teach the Bible, but we also want to just do more than teach the Bible, we want to teach the Bible in a way. That it makes sense to you, that you understand it, then you understand that it applies. You can it apply it to your life. It's more than just getting information about a book that was written uh, thousands of years ago, and then say, I don't know whether I believe it or not, or I do believe it, or you know, good thing. Or it, it's what is what difference does that make in my life today? We want to get to that point. It's really important that we do that. But the other thing that I want to do is, I want from time to time, I like to to take to step back and say. But how should we even in approach the, a, a book of the Bible or a, a piece of literature? Because the Bible contains very different kinds of literature. In fact, the book of Acts is what we call historical narrative. And historical narrative just means that it's writing history, but it's not like history like we think it. And, and it's, it's describing what's going on. So Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he's describing He's leaving things out. He's putting things in. That's what they do. And you'll see this in the Old Testament. Sometimes you'll read the Old Testament. You'll go, I don't know what I think about that. That that sounds like a bad thing. I wish somebody would say that was a bad thing. But they don't. They're just describing. They're not telling you whether it's right or wrong or whether you should do it or not do it. And that's what his historical narrative does. Now, where we get into a problem is we take a book like Acts or we take one of the Gospels and we say, okay, because they did it, we should do it too. And that's where we run into problems. So what I want to do is, and if you, if you use the YouTube version, you'll have the notes, but the, you can find the notes if you go to the website. Well, what I want to do is I want to address something, and I'm not trying to be controversial, but I'm trying to say, how should we read the book of Acts? Because it's really important that we understand that we read it in the right way, understanding and Honoring the literary type of material that it is. So, I want to answer a question as we do that because I think this is where the rubber will meet the road for you. Okay, so here's the question Does the Bible teach a second blessing? In other words, when I receive Christ as Savior, I, my sins are forgiven and I go to heaven, but there's a second blessing out there where I receive the Holy Spirit after that. And it may be days, weeks, years after that that I received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now this is taught with our, some brothers and sisters in a charismatic or Pentecostal background. would will teach that. They will get that from the book of Acts. What I'm going to propose to you is I think they're misreading the book of Acts. I don't believe there is a second blessing. There, I've cut to the chase. Now let me make my case and show you and you can decide. But I'm trying to get you to think about how do we approach Scripture because it's really important that we approach a certain type of literature correctly. Um, Some passages like historical narrative are just describing, they're telling what happened, not that we should do it too. And then other passages we read like Galatians and Ephesians and Romans, they're kind of Telling us, yeah, this is what you should do. It's prescriptive, not descriptive, okay? So when, so what I want to do is I want to show you there were four times where we see the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. There's four real times, and they're really significant, and they're really important. The first one is pretty easy, Acts chapter 2, right? The day of Pentecost, what happened? Well, the Spirit of God was poured out, and Peter and the rest of the apostles spoke in other tongues, right? That was the pouring out on, you know, on, on Pentecost, right? Then we come to Acts chapter 8, verses 17 through 19. We see Philip, we see Peter and John, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Now, interestingly enough, in, in Acts 2, it's the, the, the Holy Spirit's being poured out on Jews who are gathered for, the, the, for Pentecost, right? In Acts chapter 8... Verses 17 through 19, the, the the Spirit of God is poured out on Samaritans. Oh, well that's different. Now, culturally, you don't may not understand this, but Jews had really very little dealings with Samaritans, and they didn't really hang out with Gentiles either. So we see the second pouring out was to Samaritans. Now we come to Acts chapter 10. That's the passage we're in today, verses 45 and 46. We're gonna see that through Peter sees the Spirit of God being poured out on this godly family, this godly man named Cornelius, and he is a Gentile. He's a Gentile. And some of the Jews, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on these gent- this Gentile family, some of the Jews with Peter are shocked by it. They didn't see this coming. Then we come to Acts 19. That's the last time. It's the fourth time we see the Spirit of God poured out This is the fourth time we see it. It's Paul, and he is basically dealing with people, and he asks them, what baptism did you receive, or what information do you have? Because remember, what's going on is the gospel is rolling out. And so they said, well, we only know about the baptism of John, John the Baptist. Well, after John came Jesus, right? And so Peter begins to tell them about Jesus, you know, and he fills in the blank and all of a sudden there, you know, the pouring out of the Spirit is falling on them. What I want you to see is Luke is being very particular. He's showing that the, the Spirit of God is pouring out on these different people groups at different times to show that they're part of the church. So, let me just uh, give you a couple points here and, and, and I'll show you what I'm, the, drive home the point here. Again, Acts is a historical narrative, it's being descriptive, it's not being prescriptive. It's not telling us what we should do, it's describing what happened. So uh, that's good, so we see the gospel, the good news of the gospel is rolling out to different people groups. So what I'm saying here is I don't think we should take the events of the book of Acts and apply them directly to our day and age and say, well, that should be what happens today. For instance, we shouldn't look for a second blessing today just because it happened in the book of Acts. It's was a different time. Something specifically was happening to the church that only happened once as the gospel rolled out. Now, again, I don't know about third world countries today, but that's a whole other debate. In all these passages, we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a sign that the Samaritans and the Gentiles were part of the church. That was the point. Because the Jews didn't get that. You know, Acts 1.8, he says... Take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea, to Samaria, to the othermost parts of the world. And you would think, well, that's clear enough, isn't it? Take it to the whole world. But here's what they were thinking take it to the Jews in Jerusalem and the Jews in Samaria and the Jews and the Jews in all the world. And basically, no, Jesus said no to everyone, to all nations. Now we get that, but we're looking back. <laughs> we have all years of revelation and we have information. Okay. Look at Acts 10, verses 45 and 46, 44 and 45. While Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the message. The circumcised believers, now this is interesting, what he's saying here is that the Jews that were with Peter are absolutely shocked, they're surprised that the Spirit of God is falling on them too. That's the point. The circumcised believers who had accompanied Peter were greatly astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. You see what's going on here? What what God is doing is through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit after the fact, what he's doing is he's showing the Jews, Peter and other Jews, the Gentiles are in, the Samaritans are in. They They have the same Holy Spirit that you have. That's the point. That's the point. So I don't believe the book of Acts teaches a second blessing. You re- when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not a second blessing, a later blessing. Paul clearly says in Romans 8, which is a, a, a passage which is telling us what we should believe, not what, you know, and we should follow it. He says this, it, Romans 8, 9, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. The Bible teaches in other passages, teaching passages, that when you receive Jesus as your Savior, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God is the seal of the promise that God made to you that one day you will be with Him in heaven. The Spirit of God is that. So you don't have to look for a second blessing, because some of you were told, oh, you haven't received the gift of the Holy Spirit yet, you haven't received the second blessing, you're a second-class Christian, and I just wanted to tell you, you're not a second-class Christian. The minute you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you receive the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, whether you've, whether you've allowed the Holy Spirit to guide and direct and you know, be the king of your life, well, that's a whole other discussion. But the New Testament teaches that the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place the moment you call on the name of the Lord. And I think if you correctly read the book of Acts, as it's meant to be read, as Luke meant it to be read, he's showing that the Spirit of God is poured out to these different people groups to tell the Jews. And by the way, in Acts chapter 15, when you come to the Jerusalem Council, which we'll get to, we're going to see the, that's the argument they make. Hey, they got to be in because they spoke in tongues. They have the same Holy Spirit that we have. We can't exclude them. Well, duh. Now, we say that today, but in that day, the, it was, they were learning. They were growing. It was developing. And so that's, all right, so that's my, my second thing that I want to do today. Honor teachers. Talk about how we approach the Scripture. Now we want to jump into the passage, and i got to move pretty quickly. All right? So let's do that. Acts chapter 10. Let me start reading at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up. As a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon, the tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to, on a roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And While the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Now here's what's going to happen, and I want to describe this. Some of you know this, but some of you don't. There was a kosher diet, meaning there was a diet that Jewish people could eat and things they couldn't eat. And what you're going to see is Peter's going to have a trance of all the animals that, he was, that they were not allowed to eat. Okay, that's what's going to happen. So this was, uh, this was pretty significant. All right, so he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being led down to earth by fo- its four corners. It contained all kinds of animals, four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, now notice what the voice tells him to do. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. In other words, go ahead and eat. Kosher's over, <laughs> Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now this is a really dramatic statement because if you know anything about the Old Testament, there were certain foods and certain things that Israel was allowed to eat and certain things they were not allowed to eat. That's what we call kosher and many Jewish people still practice kosher today. And Peter's being told kosher is over. But there's a bigger picture of what Peter's being told. Peter is saying, don't make a distinction about the foods you eat anymore. That day is over. And also, don't make a distinction about the people that you exclude from my church. That's the bigger message that Peter is going to make. And he's going to show Peter that Cornelius, even though he's a Gentile, is part of the church. And though Peter may call him unclean, God doesn't. That's what's going on here. Okay. So what are the lessons that we can take from this passage? This is where everything I've set up to this point, is. you may say, and if you're watching online, you may say, okay, it was, it was interesting. Maybe you didn't even say that. But you say, okay, but I don't know what difference that means to me. And this is where we're going to get into where the passage hopefully will apply to your life. I think there's three lessons we can learn from this passage. Number one, God works On both sides of your relationships. Do you notice in the passage. That God was working on Cornelius' side. Right? He's telling Cornelius what to do. But he's also working on Peter's side. Because Peter has a lifelong tradition. That's going to have to change. His view not only of what food is clean or unclean. And by the way if you read the passage. The debate goes back and forth a little bit longer. I didn't have time this morning to go on. But what you'll see is. Peter finally comes to a place where God says to him, stop calling people unclean that I have called clean. That's what he wants him to see. So Peter has to make a change here. Look at Acts 10, verse 28. Peter is before Cornelius. He's talking to Cornelius. And he's basically saying, I'm shocked that I'm before you talking to you today. That's essentially what he says. Look what he says. You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. First he did it through the food, but then he did it through the people. Now this is shocking, isn't it? Didn't you think when we were starting in the book of Acts that Peter got this, he understood this, it made sense to him? Well, no, it didn't. But God was working in Peter's heart and his life. And he had to change of belief, a belief, a, a firmly held belief in Peter's life. And, God, and those don't, by the way, those don't change overnight and it took a while for that to work in Peter. But God did get to Peter's heart. Peter had some racial and religious walls that needed to come down if Cornelius and the Gentiles were going to be included into the church. That's the point. Now, here's the good news for you. In every one of the relationships you have right now, God is working on both ends. He's working on your end and he's working on the other end. Now, what we tend to do is we want God to fix that person on the other end and not do anything with us because we don't think we've done anything wrong ever. We're perfect, right? Well, you're not perfect. (laughs) And, And I always say, make sure you're not the one that put the wall up. If, if you have a problem in a relationship because you have put a wall up, you're, what God is telling you is sometime or another you're going to have to pull that wall down. Now again, I, I don't have time to put disclaimers in all of this. All I really want to say to you is there are some relationships that you are not having with another person because you have put a wall up. Because the problem is with you or part of the problem is with you. And that's true of marriages, that's true of parent-child relationships, that's true of sibling relationships, that's true of friendships, that's true of work relationships. And what we tend to do, maybe God is saying something very simple. Because you're the kind of person, somebody says something, your feelings are hurt, you go to another person, you say, do you want to know what they said? No, what did they say? They said this, oh, that's too bad, they should have never said that. That's not you, and they're, they're a jerk, aren't they? And you get your jerk posse together to say they're all a jerk, you know. And, and God is saying, get rid of the jerk posse. Get rid of it. Stop it, knock it off. But you don't want to. Right? That's what the work God wants to do in your life. And your job on the other side is to pray for that person. And say, you know, they might be a jerk. But but God, you work on that, work on my part of it. And so the, the good news is this whatever relationship you're struggling with is to know that God works on both ends of the relationship. But you're responsible for what you can do and what God is telling you to do today in your part of the relationship, with your child, with your spouse, with whoever. You're responsible for that part. And you know it's, listen, this happens to me. I, you know, I'm not immune to this. And I hate it when God, the Spirit of God does that to me. He says, you know what you got to do? I go, yeah, but I don't want to. And He goes, I know, but you got to do it anyway. But I finally, hopefully, get to that place. Well, that's the first lesson. God was working in Cornelius' life. God was working in Peter's life. And God is going to bring them together. And there's a cultural, huge cultural divide going on here. Here's the second lesson. God shows no racism or favoritism, neither should you. And that's the point of this passage. That's really what it falls down on. Basically, what's going on is Peter and the rest of the apostles are being racist. James basically says it doesn't have to even be race; It could be monetary. You have somebody who's really rich and you bring them down front. You show them all the perks. And you, you take the poor person and say, you sit back here somewhere. You don't matter. God says that shouldn't be. And yet that's what we do often. Look at what Peter says. And this is Acts chapter 10 verse 34. He says, I now realize how true It is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts every nation, the one who fears him, and does what is right. Peter basically had a revelation. Hey, you know what? I'm thinking that maybe the Samaritans and the Gentiles are going to be part of this new thing we call the church. And we're all going, yes, Peter, you're getting it. That's true. But you know what? If you were back there, you would have done the same thing. See, Peter and his early church in uh, the early church, struggled with racism and favoritism. In fact, at one time, there's one point where, by the way, Peter wasn't the only leader in the early church. There was James, Acts 15. We're going to see James, the brother of Jesus. He's going to be a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And then Paul was a leader in the church. In fact, Paul says this is Galatians chapter two. So what's going on here is Peter is playing loose in fact with, it. And, you know, we It would be nice when God says, go, you know, you need to change your heart in this area. You go, okay, changed it. What next? You know, it doesn't work that way. It's a slow process, right? And it's more like, it's not like, uh, it's not like this. It's more like, "Mm, mm, mm, mm," right? But you're making progress little by little. And and the same was true for Peter. So what Peter was doing was he would hang around the Gentiles. But then when his Jewish friends who were more staunch and strict and still into the kosher thing, because they kind of hadn't figured it out yet. When they came in the town, he acted like his Gentile friends didn't exist at all. Like if they were walking down the street and a group of them said, Hey, Peter, Gentile, saying, and he was with his Jewish friends. They go, Well, who are them? I have no idea who they are. I wouldn't associate with them. What are you talking about? In other words, he's playing two-sided here. And Paul calls him out. That's what Galatians is about. Look at what he says. In Galatians 2.11, he says, When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I had to, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it that you force Gentiles to follow your Jewish customs? In other words, what, what, what Paul's calling Peter on is he's saying, Peter, you're being two-faced. You're being racist. You're acting one way in a Gentile audience you're acting one way in a Jewish audience. And the interesting thing that Paul says is, he says he doesn't call him a racist. He says you're not acting in line with the gospel. He's saying that's not what the gospel is, Peter. Peter, just understand that below, beneath the cross, the ground is level beneath the cross. It doesn't matter what nation, what ethnicity, what, where you come from as far as wealth. Because we are all sinners and we all need a Savior. See, whenever you demonstrate racism or favoritism, you're not acting in line with the gospel. Here's the last point being good is not good enough. Being good is not good enough. Look at, uh, let's read uh, verses 1 and 2 of Acts, Acts 10 for a moment, one more time. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Now notice what he says about him. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Devoted to God, gave generously, prayed regularly. Now, This was his reputation within the community. How many of you would say, Yeah, I think that's what people would, I think those are the three descriptors people would use of me. This is a pretty godly person, right? Now, what does God do? God sends Peter to to Cornelius to do what? To say to Cornelius, Cornelius, you are knocking it out of the park. You are man your resume is unbelievable you are such a good person and such a good family you deserve to be part of the church you deserve to be in heaven this is, that's not what happens Cornelius was what we call and the Bible calls them God fearers and what did, what, did, what did God do to Cornelius he sent Peter to tell him about Jesus. Because no matter how good you are, you still need Jesus. Because we're all sinners, we all fall short, we all need a Savior. And it doesn't matter how good you are. And here's the problem we have so many people in this community and around the United States and around the world that are going to church, they're trying to live a good life so that one day God will say, You've done good, you've done enough good to get into heaven. I was living that life. Maybe you're watching online and that's what you were taught. You were taught, live a good life and then one day God will let you in heaven because you deserve it. You were good enough. You did enough. And, and, and what you have to understand is you still need Jesus. I remember a number of years ago when a friend of mine said, if you were to die today, would you go to be with God in heaven? I said, well, I hope so. And he said, well, if... Peter were to stand, or Jesus were to stand at the gate of heaven and say, Why should I let you in? I would say, Well, I go to church, I believe in you, I'm trying to live a good life. And he says, Well, what about Jesus? Where does he fit in? I have no idea. Somewhere. What I hadn't come to grips with was I was a sinner and I couldn't save myself. Do you know there's a lot of people that are trying to live a good life? They're, they're creating a resume of righteousness that they can hand to God that one day God is going to look at and say, well, of course you deserve to get in here. Cornelius was a righteous, God-fearing man and had a family that followed. They gave they, 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 they prayed. They were godly. They were God-fearers. And God still sent Peter. What did Peter say? Look at the message. This is the message, verse 39. We are witnesses of everything, speaking of Jesus. Now Peter's telling him, a good man, about Jesus We are witnesses of everything he, Jesus, did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on the cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He commanded us to preach to people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him. And notice the, the heart of what he says right here. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So he says a couple of important things there. He says, number one, we're sinners and we need a Savior. And it says that when we call upon him, we find forgiveness, not because we're good enough or not we've done enough, but because he did enough for us. What were the last words that Jesus said when he hung on the cross? It is finished. See, many people in this community... Maybe they're your friends, your neighbors, your family members. They're trying to live a good enough life so that they will be acceptable to God one day. But in the end, you have to decide who's your Savior going to be. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No matter how good Cornelius was, he still needed a Savior. No matter how good the best person that ever lived on this earth ever was, they still needed a Savior. They still needed Jesus. Now, we want to believe the best for people. Well, and we hear this all the time. I hear it all the time at funerals. Oh, they were a good person. They did all so many good things. and That's good. Did they know Jesus? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You have to decide whether you need a Savior or not, or whether you're going to be your own Savior. Or you're going to ask Jesus to be the Savior. It says there were two criminals that were crucified on either side of Jesus. And they were both began mocking him. But in the end, the one had a turn. They did a 180. He repented. And he looked at Jesus and he realized Jesus was his only hope. And he was a sinner. And he recognized it. He said, well, you no, know, we deserve to be here. We, we actually did bad things. He's innocent. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, Jesus says back to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. What did he do? He just put his faith in Jesus. Did he do any good works? No, he didn't have time. Did he get baptized? No. Did he join church? No. He put his faith in Jesus. So my question to you is, who is your Savior? Are you trying to save yourself or are you allowing Jesus to save you? Cornelius was a good person, but he still needed a Savior. All right. One last thing I need to do and close our time in prayer. So uh, many of you have heard there was an earthquake in Haiti. There was an assassination a few weeks ago. Um, Haiti is just a a mess. It's an absolute mess. And we uh, have people that have gone over the years to Haiti. We have a team. We don't have a team, but there are some people from this church that will be going to Haiti um, in about a month. And we need to pray for them. And we need to pray for Haiti and for the devastation that they're going through. And we need to pray for Afghanistan. Um, there are are, are girls and women, specifically girls that are 18 years and younger, who have never lived under um, Taliban law. And it is going to be... I I can't imagine it, um, what what is going to happen. I think it's going to be some extermination of people And it is a terrible crisis right now. Not just for Christians, but for everyone who is not. um, I, I don't even know how to pray for this. And the next time you think your life is bad and you're struggling and life is hard, there's two good examples. Start to read what's happening and you'll go, Lord, why have you blessed me so much? But we need to pray for them right now. Let's do that. And Father, we do pray for the nation of Haiti and the people there. Uh, We know there's many Christian organizations that are trying to help. We pray that you bring relief and spiritual help and assistance. We know that uh, this has been just a devastating uh, time uh, for them. Uh, We ask for your mercies today. Uh, Bless Mountaintop Ministries and other ministries that are doing a good work with the clinic and the school and the church. Uh, we would also ask, Father, for uh, the situation in Afghanistan, for the many girls and the young women that uh, are going to be just totally ravaged and devastated in the coming weeks and years. We pray for the Christians there that are going to be uh, persecuted and tortured. We pray for those who have uh, been favorable and helpful to the United States who are going to be executed. Um, we just can't imagine uh, what that, how that breaks your heart. Uh, We would ask, Father, that uh, you would bring some semblance of, um, again, not trying to be political, Father, but just help. And I didn't even know what that looks looks like or looks for, but I just pray that uh, we would understand um, the the terrible pain that is happening right now and is about to happen. Um, We just pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.